Sorensen was angry. And when he'd see me, which was a few times after that, he'd say, there was no cover-up. Well, of course there was. I mean, they were hiding from the public the extent of Kennedy's medical history and the difficulties. Because if people knew how many medical uh, health problems Kennedy had, I don't think he ever would have been elected in 1960. However unfair that may be, because he acquitted himself brilliantly during the presidency. I set his medical records down alongside of the Cuban Missile Crisis with the tapes we had. There were no concessions to his uh, medical difficulties during that crisis. Now, it was the medications that helped him, I think, get through it without uh, uh, stumbles. Politicians have long kept medical secrets from the public, and regardless of their stated motives, it's not a good thing, however it turns out. We expect our leaders to be at the top of their game when a crisis strikes, and if an illness they know about could prevent that, we need to know, especially if that politician can press a few buttons and potentially destroy the planet. Politicians further down the food chain have hidden medical issues, but their judgments are no less important. They make decisions involving thousands or millions of dollars of taxpayer money, and by hiding their illness, they make themselves vulnerable to blackmail by someone who discovers the secret. I'm Jim Grinstead, and today we're looking at medical secrets that the public has a right to know. In 2012, a senator in Canada's parliament continued to vote for four months, despite the fact that she had Alzheimer's disease. Joyce Fairbairn was the first woman to serve as the leader of the government in the Canadian Senate. She was a former journalist who covered parliament, and in 1984, just prior to leaving office, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau recommended her appointment as a Liberal senator for Alberta, her home province. In 1993, when the Liberals returned to power, she was appointed to the cabinet as government leader in the Senate, the first female senator in the post, and minister with special responsibility for literacy. She served in the cabinet until 1997, when she became special advisor on literacy. She also chaired the Standing Senate Committee on Agriculture and Forestry and the Special Senate Committee on the Anti-Terrorism Act. She had power, responsibility, and experience. In 2012, she was declared legally incompetent, but continued to vote for another four months. She resigned from her post in 2013. One senator said she had signed a power of attorney and that others were in charge of her affairs since April two months before the news of her illness was revealed. That power of attorney went to her niece, Patricia McCullough, and Leonard Kuchar, chief of staff to Liberal Senate leader James Cowan. After the news broke, several officials who spent time around her said they'd noticed a difference in her. Many of the remarks were supportive, but others were highly critical. That offended Catherine Ford, a Calgary literacy advocate. What's been happening in the past few days since the announcement was made public was this piling on, you know, as if somehow she's responsible for being sick. Who does that to a person? Who treats anyone who has contributed so much to this country and to this province? Fairburn died in 2022, 
She was 73 when she left the Senate, where the mandatory retirement age is 75. I found no suggestion that the liberal Senate leader voted on her behalf, but it does raise the question, if he had power of attorney, could he have cast votes in her name? It's unlikely he did, but Fairbird's health and legal status are important for the public to know. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner went to the dentist for a toothache. The dentist noticed a bump and suggested that Turner have a biopsy. A few days later, the doctor told the mayor an upcoming trade mission to France had to be canceled. said, you know, why? He said, well, you need, to come and, you need to come and see me. And I said, look, I'll be back in one week. And just as soon as I get back, I will come and see you. And he said, no, you need to come and see me. And I said, Doc, I promise you. And it's just what I said, Doc, I promise you, just as soon as I get, I said, I got to go on this trade mission. And then he said, he said, um, Sylvester, there will come a time when you'll put your helm in front of everything else. And that's when it hit me. And I said, um, hmm, okay. He simply said, you need to come see me and you shouldn't make this trip. In person, when I, when I went in to, uh, to see him and he told me, um, that kind of, that jarred me a little bit. Well, you know, I wasn't expecting it, let me put it that way. I'll put it this way. I knew something. If, if I'm saying I'll come back in one week and you're telling me I don't think so, and then when you end it by saying there comes a time when you need to put yourself in front, at, at that, to be honest with you, at that moment, I kind of I expected that, yeah, that was... This one the root can tell. So when I did go in and uh, and he told and he told me, it wasn't that, like I wasn't expecting it, but to hear it will still joy you. It will still you kind of expect, but you're also expecting something less. That was Turner speaking with KHOU. Turner said when it came to talk to his family, he wasn't totally candid. But, but even then, you know, I didn't tell them everything. I told them what I thought was enough. They, they kind of knew something. You know, it was the first time that I was even going to a hospital in my life. You know, so that was different. But um, I, I told them what I thought was enough. I had the toothache probably for about um, about about a month, about a month, because um, maybe been a little bit longer than that. But the the Tylenol and ibuprofen was making it very manageable. Turner then asked his doctors what the next step would be. But he said we're gonna we're gonna do a full body scan uh, to see you know whether or not it's 
someplace else in your body because that will determine how we're going to deal with this situation. And it had not. I did the full body and then he came back and he said, no, it appears to be localized. And then he said, but, uh, but that also means I'm going to have to remove a portion of your lower jaw and the, uh, the teeth back there and a portion of the bone to remove it. And so what we're going to do is that we're going to remove this bone and we're going to take a portion of the bone from your uh, tibia that's not load-bearing and replace it. After the surgery, Turner did not miss a council meeting but his chemotherapy treatment had not yet started, and he had a scheduled vacation that was already on the books. The only person on my staff that knew was the chief of staff. Other council members? No. So you were showing up after radiation and nobody knows? No. They knew what I, what I said to them is that I had major oral surgery, and I had several of my teeth removed from the lower part of my jaw, which was true. And I came back with this mask on. They knew my side of my face was really swollen. They, they, knew, they knew that. But other than I had no major oral surgery, I didn't say anything. Now, they may have, people may have been speculating, oh, there's got to be a little bit more going on with the mayor. And I would say, so my chief of staff knew, my family knew. Of course, the mayor's detail knew. But beyond that, that was it. Did you lose weight? I lost about 15 to 17 pounds. So why did you feel the did you feel the need to not tell many people why why did so few people know? Because you know you, you still got a job to do, and I wanted everybody I wanted people to do their jobs. I didn't I didn't need uh, I didn't need any people coming up and saying, "Mayor, are you okay?" That wouldn't have done me any good. People needed to focus on what they were doing, like I was focusing on what I was doing. I was getting the best medical care possible, so I was. Uh, I knew I was in. I knew I was in good hands, mentally speaking. I was good a, in a good place, and I wanted to stay in that space. For Turner and Houston, things worked out well, but what if they hadn't? If Houston faced a major unexpected crisis, could the mayor have done his job while undergoing chemotherapy? Fortunately, we didn't have to find out. It almost seems like sacrilege to talk about JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, a beloved president who died from the pull of a sniper's finger, but he was also a sick man, a very sick man, and those illnesses were known before he was elected. The public was never told. There's no question that Ted Sorensen was a keeper of the flame. After I, my personal experience with him, after I revealed the... Uh, Kennedy medical records. He was the one who uh, signed off. There was a, a three-man committee that controlled those medical records, and the, two of the members signed off. And Sorensen was reluctant to do it. I went to see him in New York, met with him in his residence, in his apartment, and persuaded him to let me have access to the records. Well, he didn't know what was in there. And when the records came out. The New York Times ran a front-page story about my findings. The Atlantic magazine published an article out of uh, my book and on these uh, on Kennedy's medical history. Sorensen was angry. And when he'd see me, which was a few times after that, he'd say, there was no cover-up. Well, of course there was. 
I mean, they were hiding from the public the extent of Kennedy's medical history and the difficulties. Because if people knew how many medical uh, health problems Kennedy had, I don't think he ever would have been elected in 1960. However unfair that may be, because he acquitted himself brilliantly during the presidency. I set his medical records down alongside of the Cuban Missile Crisis with the tapes we had. There were no concessions to his uh, medical difficulties during that crisis. Now, it was the medications that helped him, I think, get through it without stumbles. That was Robert Dalek, author of Camelot's Court, Inside the Kennedy White House, during an interview on C-SPAN. Ted Sorensen was a Kennedy speechwriter. You say in this book that Ted Kennedy found out about his brother's, all of his health problems from your book. Well, not all of them, but I think because he knew that his brother had a medical history and had uh, health problems. But yes, Ted did not know the full extent of his brother's health problems, and it's the measure of how much they hit it, how much the uh, uh, Joe Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, the president himself, Jackie, uh, they were the ones who knew, but uh, it was largely hidden from the world. Dr. Howard Markle, writing on the PBS website, said, To put it bluntly, long before he died at age 46, Kennedy was a very sick man. As a child, Kennedy nearly died from scarlet fever and also had serious digestive problems, most likely spastic colitis or irritable bowel syndrome, which plagued him for the rest of his life. As a young man, he suffered from urinary tract infections and a duodenal ulcer. Better known was his notorious spine and back problems that began while playing football in college. His lower back pain was so severe, he was initially rejected by both the U.S. Army and the Navy when he first volunteered for service in World War II. Kennedy later entered the service, but only after his influential father pulled the right strings. Markle went on to explain that in 1944, Kennedy underwent the first of four unsuccessful back surgeries. He had three more procedures between 1954 and 1957 while he was a U.S. Senator. His spinal surgeries, which included fusions of the lumbar vertebrae and the placement of metal plates, were complicated by poor wound healing, painful abscesses, and bone infections. Markle said Kennedy was so ill that at a few points during this period, his Catholic priest administered last rites. As for the other issues, they were largely unknown. As Markle noted, Kennedy overcame those problems to navigate a crisis that could have led to nuclear war. Would the public have wanted a president with those distractions to be making those decisions? Fortunately, we're all here to debate that issue. Which brings us to Grover Cleveland. Bet you didn't see that coming, did you? Before we talk about his surgery, let's take a moment for a history lesson about who the man was before he became president. Let me correct that. Cleveland became president twice, just not in consecutive terms. He had to wait out the term of Benjamin Harrison before he could retake the office. It's also the reason that Joe Biden is the 46th president, despite the fact that only 45 people have held the title of being a United States president. 
Simon Whistler, the YouTube channel Biographics, tells the story much better than I could. After a year spent teaching in a school for the blind, the future president seems to have hit on a plan. Borrowing $25, he traveled to Buffalo, where his uncle had promised him a job clerking at a law firm. But this wasn't just a sideways career move. Oh no. Despite his relative lack of education, Cleveland was determined to become a lawyer. That meant four years of working like mad, burning the candle not just at both ends, but in the middle, near the edges, and just about every other conceivable place too. All day long, Cleveland clerked. All through the evening, he studied law, cramming like someone permanently preparing for finals. And it paid off. In 1858, this poor boy from the sticks was admitted to the bar. Perhaps more importantly, though, the experience left Cleveland with two deeply held convictions. A certainty in the value of both hard work and modest living. It would be these convictions that typified his White House tenure. But first, the young lawyer had to get through the Civil War. Regardless of his level of participation, though, the Civil War still had one major impact on Cleveland's life. As America burns, the young man took the job of Assistant District Attorney of Erie County. Unbeknownst to anyone, it would be the start of Cleveland's spectacular journey into politics. We mentioned before how the future president was almost singularly unambitious. So rather than finish his tenure as assistant DA and then set his sights higher, Cleveland instead finished his term, then went to open a law practice with his friend Oscar Folsom. It wasn't until 1870 that he drifted back towards politics, becoming sheriff of Erie County. He held that position for three years before once again going back to practicing law. Still, his short tenure as sheriff wouldn't be forgotten by Cleveland or his enemies. With the county's executioner often unavailable, Cleveland stepped in on multiple occasions as a substitute. It was his hand that pulled the lever, opening the trapdoor and causing the sickening crack sound as the condemned's neck broke. Now, there's no suggestion that he enjoyed this task, but it does nicely show the steel that lay at Cleveland's core, hidden beneath the flabby exterior. And by this time, there was no doubting that flabby was exactly what Cleveland was becoming. Always overweight as a child, the future president entered his fourth decade with a waistline expanding like the early universe. In part, this was due to his insatiable appetites. Cleveland drank like an alcoholic fish, he ate like a gluttonous horse, and he hated exercise, once declaring, bodily movement alone is among the dreary and unsatisfying things of life. By 1880, he'd ballooned nearly 280 pounds, making him the fattest president not named William Howard Taft. Not that his weight ever seems to have bothered the man who was nicknamed Uncle Jumbo. Before stepping into presidential politics, Cleveland was on a roll, and along the way, Democrats asked him to run for mayor of Buffalo, New York. Cleveland agreed and amazed everyone by winning. What was even more surprising, though, was that he even went on to be an excellent mayor. The moment he arrived in City Hall, the old core of steel inside Cleveland reawakened. Instead of simply signing off on his party's wasteful spending, the new mayor took an axe to Buffalo's budget, cutting away the fat, leaving behind a city that was leaner, less corrupt, and better run. And his secret weapon? was the veto. In all of his leadership roles, from Buffalo mayor all the way to president, Cleveland would become notorious for vetoing any bill he felt wasted money. Remember, this was the great era of pork barrel politics, when throwing money at allies, patrons, and random passers-by was just how you did things. 
but not Grover Cleveland. In his single year as Buffalo's mayor, Cleveland exercised so much corruption and saved so much money that he became a public hero. And not just in Buffalo. At state level, New York Democrats noticed this rising star and begged him to run for governor. Just like with the Buffalo mayoral race, Cleveland agreed, and just like in Buffalo, he won, despite having never really sought the job. As 1883 dawned then, Cleveland was on a dizzying journey that had taken him to governor of America's then most popular state in a mere two years. Cleveland is widely regarded as one of the most honest presidents in American history, which is a perfect segue into telling you his dirty little secret. I'm not talking about his illegitimate children, which he eventually did acknowledge publicly. I'm talking about cancer in his mouth. In his book, The President is a Sick Man, Matthew Algy tells PBS why Cleveland thought it was important to keep his illness a secret. The summer of 1893 was a terrible period in America's economic history. There was a speculative bubble in 1893, and the bubble was railroads. The Reading Railroad went bankrupt shortly before Grover Cleveland took office, and by the end of the year, 119 railroads had gone bankrupt. The markets were crashing, Wall Street was in a panic, and Cleveland was afraid that if it came to be known he had cancer, which at that time was considered a death sentence, that the bottom would fall out of the markets and there would be utter financial chaos in the country. There was a stigma attached to cancer. Uh, the word itself was avoided. Newspapers called it the dread disease or the disease that no doctor dare name. In fact, when Cleveland's doctor diagnosed him with this tumor in his mouth, the doctor just said, it's a bad looking tenant and I would have it removed immediately. And this was another reason that Cleveland wanted to keep it, keep it secret because there was this stigma attached to cancer in the 1890s. Cleveland was really kind of a private guy. So they came up with a plan so that Americans wouldn't know the president had cancer surgery? That plan was dreamed up by Cleveland himself, and it was to have this very delicate surgery on his jaw to be done at sea. He had a friend who owned a yacht, and they often went on fishing trips, so the cover story would be, oh, I'm just going on a fishing trip. And so they sailed from New York to uh, the president's home. He had a home on Cape Cod. And while they were on that boat, the operation took place. Six doctors were recruited. They were all sworn to secrecy. And in about 90 minutes, they removed most of his upper left palate, uh, five teeth, and a good part of his uh, upper left jaw as well. It was pretty radical surgery for the time. What they did is uh, they managed to keep the, the uh, press at bay. Uh, they kept them at a distance from his home on Cape Cod until the wound was healed well enough. It took about three weeks. And then he was fitted with a prosthetic device that he could pop up uh, into his upper left jaw. When, when that was in place, it, it restored the shape of his face, but more importantly, restored his normal speaking voice. So it was really only about three or four weeks after the operation that he was able to appear in public and speak again. But you also have to remember in 1893, in the summer especially, it was very hot in Washington, as it is still. And uh, back then, it wasn't unusual for the president and Congress to just leave the city for a month at the time. So it really wasn't unusual for him to go on this long fishing trip and spend some time in his summer home. Few people knew why Cleveland suddenly decided to go fishing. The vice president didn't know. The VP in Cleveland didn't get along very well, so Cleveland sent him on an errand to the Pacific Northwest to get him out of the way. Members of Congress weren't told either. They boarded this yacht. It was late June in 1893. They boarded the yacht in New York and took four days to uh, sail up to Buzzards Bay on Cape Cod where Cleveland had his summer home. And it was on that yacht that this operation was performed. They assembled a team of six surgeons. It took about 90 minutes 
They used ether as the uh, anesthesia, and they removed the tumor along with about five teeth and a large part of the president's upper left jawbone. There were no external scars because they were able to pull the mouth open wide enough to get to the tumor. Cleveland also had a very distinctive mustache, and uh, he was very afraid that if anything happened to the mustache, people would know right away that something was up. So it was very important to Cleveland that A, there be no external scars, and B, save the mustache. And they would have pulled it off, if not for E.J. Edwards, a reporter for the Philadelphia Press who reported the story. It did not go well for him. Cleveland condemned the reporter and called the story a lie. And so when this report came out, Cleveland simply dismissed it. His aide said he had suffered nothing worse than a toothache. And not only that, they, they not only denied the story, but the, 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 the policy was to discredit the reporter. And so Cleveland's allies in the Democratic press really uh, uh, vilified this reporter. They called him a cancer faker, a disgrace to journalism, a panic monger, these sorts of things. And so in the end, the public believed the president. Cleveland's nickname was the honest president. And it's almost as if he had all this political capital built up over the years, and he decided to spend it on this one big lie. Edwards' reporting career suffered, but one of the doctors who performed the operation eventually came forward to confirm the story. This doctor, his name was Keene, he was from Philadelphia, decided to finally publish an account of the operation. He published it in the Saturday Evening Post of all places, not a medical journal. And I think maybe the doctor wanted to brag a little bit because it had been such a successful operation. But he also did it to vindicate Edwards. And Edwards was still alive at that time, uh, a man in his 70s. Um, but he was very much gratified by this. And it was 24 long years that he, uh, it took him to uh, finally be vindicated as, as uh, Keene, the doctor, described it as a truthful correspondent. And if you need further proof that the story is real? Actually, the tumor itself was saved, and it's in a, muse in a museum in Philadelphia. It's called the Mütter Museum. It's a great museum of all kinds of medical oddities. If you ever want to see a Chief Justice John Marshall's bladder stones, that's the place to go. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support it, please consider doing so via Patreon. For just $10 a month, you'll help us keep the lights on so we can continue to create great content for you. You can sign up at patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, then search for Scams and Cons. There'll be a link in the show notes. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> you can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.